you remember what we talked about last week? I won't actually quiz you, but I'll tell you. Last week, we studied the first seven verses of Romans, and we talked about how one of God's big purposes with this book is to bring together two distinct groups of Christians, Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, and how Paul's method of doing this, bringing unity where there could potentially be disunity, was to remind them that they all serve the same Lord, Jesus Christ. So that was last week. We talked about what God's trying to do through Paul with the Roman Christians. This week, we're going to talk about how Paul feels about the Roman Christians. So our pa- does this sound normal to you guys? It's a little echoey up here. Just make sure it's not distracting to anybody. All right. Good. Yeah. <laughs> no, nobody actually answers me when I ask those questions anyway, so I don't know why I do. Thumbs up from Randy. Okay. Back on track, studying the Bible. Um, this passage is actually very straightforward and simple, um, but it's full of this, this Paul's way of speaking. Paul has a way of writing that fills every verse with like six or seven points of truth. And it's hard to see the forest from the trees sometimes. It's hard to see the big point for all the little points. And just so you know, during this series, I'm not going to be hitting all the points through Romans. That would be impossible. That would take my lifetime. I'm trying to give you sort of the big points. Okay, so you guys at home in your house-to-house groups, wherever, you study and get all the little points that I'm leaving behind because there's a lot of them. But boiled down, here's what he's saying. This is just boiled down from all of this meat that's in here to just the basic. He's saying, I'm thankful for you. Because your faith is spreading throughout the world. Therefore, I want to visit you so I can stir up your faith by preaching the gospel to you. That's pretty simple greeting for the letter, right? That's basically what he's saying. I'm thankful for you because your faith is spreading throughout the world. Therefore, I want to visit you so I can stir up your faith by preaching the gospel to you. So what does that mean for us? How is this at all significant for us? How many of you, you don't have to raise your hands, but you've read through some of these letters in the New Testament. And as you read the greeting and even the conclusions, you just sort of gloss over and you just skip it because it's Paul talking to these people and it just doesn't seem like it has anything to do with our lives. Well, it does. And um, I have tried to figure out why it's significant for us and I've got three points. Okay, here's the three points for the sermon today. First, a spreading faith is the goal. A faith that is spreading is the goal. Second, mutual faith burns hotter than solitary faith. And third, the gospel stokes the flames of faith. Those are our three points. Ready? There's a lot about faith in there, as as you can guess. I know faith is one of these fuzzy church words, so I think we need to define it before we can move on. Um... I'm sorry, I hate to be distracting. This is really echoey up here. I might need to switch to a handheld. Would that mess everything up, Rick? Is that okay? I'm sorry. Y'all hang with me here. Oh, he's funny. Mark Jameson, ladies and gentlemen. See, this sounds better to me. I really don't want to be distracting about it, but does that sound okay to you guys? Okay. Now Mark can hear me. The rest of this sermon is going to be dedicated to Mark Jameson, ladies and gentlemen. 
See, I can't hear you, so. <laughs> okay, we will study the Bible this morning. I will get to it. Let me button this. Okay, so faith. We really need to define faith because all this whole passage in this sermon is about faith. So, without answering me, how would you define faith? What is faith? We talk about it all the time. But what is it? Somebody comes to you at your workplace, and they walk up to you, and they say, you know, I've been wondering this morning. I hear you Christians talking about faith, but I have no idea what that word really means to you Christians. What does it mean? How do you describe it to them? Is everybody getting your answer in your mind? I hope that you have an answer, but I know that many probably won't because these church words we hear them from the time that we're children and then we forget to ever really figure out what they mean sometimes. So let's do some work. Let's define faith and then we can study the passage. Do you think that you have faith? Okay, so you're confident that you have faith. Let's see. Let's, let's get into it and see. Um, this book is going to talk a lot about faith. So really this whole series will be in a, in a sense clarifying in our minds what faith is. But I can tell you, basically, when Paul says faith, he's talking about the faith in Jesus Christ that saves people from the grip, guilt, and filth of sin. I know I've used that before. The faith that Paul is talking about is the faith in Jesus Christ that saves people from the grip that sin has on us. It releases us from sin's grip. It forgives us from the guilt that we have for sin. You know, we should all die because of sin. And it cleanses us from the contamination of it so we can be with a holy God. That's what Paul basically means by faith, but there's more to it than that. So we need to flip over to another passage, and I'll invite you to flip over there with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Some of you may have thought of this verse when I asked you, what is faith? Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 is the most concise definition of faith that there is in the Bible. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1. What is faith? He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But what in the world does that mean? If you're explaining this to your non-Christian co-worker, do you think that's going to mean anything to them? What does that mean? We've got to get this religious, these ideas into practical reality. What does that mean? Assurance of things hoped for. Confidence in things not seen. Well, I think God knows us pretty well, and he knows that we're not going to quite get it from that. So if you'll continue reading in Hebrews 11, sometime on your own, you'll see dozens of examples of this faith. Examples are so helpful, aren't they? I, sometimes I struggle to come up with good examples for you during a sermon, but every once in a while when I can... That's usually what you end up remembering. So I'm going to just bullet point the examples that the writer of Hebrews lays out to help us understand what faith is, okay? So for Abel, faith was an obedient sacrifice. For Noah, faith was a prolonged and public act of radical obedience. Noah listened to an unseen God who told him that there was going to be rain when no one on the earth had ever even seen rain, and he built a gigantic boat. That's what faith looked like for Noah. 
For Abraham, faith was a completely reckless, life-changing act of leaving his home, his inheritance, to a place he knew not where, in obedience to the unseen God. For Sarah, faith was waiting for God to fulfill a promise. Even though it went against biology, she was past childbearing age, and he said, no, you're going to have a child, and she trusted. That's what faith looked like to her. Again, for Abraham, faith was the willingness to let go of his most cherished possession, his only son, Isaac. For Isaac and Jacob, it was trusting in God's promise of things to come. For Moses, it was a whole career of challenging and dangerous leadership over the Israelites. For Rahab, faith was risking her life to take part in God's work. She's the one that harbored spies, Israelite spies, in enemy territory. For many others, it was conquering kingdoms, performing acts of righteousness, maintaining, I'm sorry, obtaining promises, shutting the mouths of lions, quenching the power of fire, escaping the edge of the sword, being strengthened when weak, becoming mighty in war, receiving the dead in resurrection. All this sounds really good, doesn't it? This is exciting stuff. This is faith. These are examples of faith. But the list turns really dark here, if you're familiar with Hebrews chapter 11. Here's some other examples of what faith looks like. Enduring torture. Enduring mockery. Enduring scourging. Enduring chains. Enduring imprisonment. Being stoned. Being sawn in two. Being tempted. Being put to death by the sword. Being destitute. Being afflicted. Being ill-treated. Being homeless. Those are all examples of what faith might look like for us. Faith is a big idea. It's a big idea. What does faith look like for you? Based on all this, in Hebrews 11, faith is confidence in God that enables us to do stuff. There's a little simple definition. Faith is enough confidence in God that you are enabled to actually do stuff. And I don't just mean anything. It's, it's such assurance that God loves us and he knows what's best for us that we obey. Faith is such confidence that God is worthy that we can sacrifice things we really care about for God, even though we can't see him. Faith enables us to worship, to trust, to risk, to let go, to wait, to lead, to conquer, to act decisively, to become better, to endure hardships of every kind. And I'm telling you all this, we're going to get back into Romans, but I want you to see that faith is not some limp, weak idea. Faith is strength. Faith is having enough confidence in God that we can live and act. You're never weak because you have too much faith. No one has ever been weak because they've had too much faith. We're only weak when we have too little faith. Some of us men think that faith is okay sort of for the women, but we've got muscle. But we're wrong. Faith is muscle. As a Christian, you can't do anything without faith. So, combining all this from Hebrews with how Paul uses the word in Romans, here's how I'm going to define faith what Paul means by it. Faith is confidence in our unseen hope 
of release from the grip of sin, forgiveness for the guilt of sin, and cleansing of the filth of sin that enables us to live a life of radical devotion to Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. Did y'all get all that? (laughs) No? That's all right. We'll flesh it out in the rest of the sermon. Okay, so we got that out of the way. We know what faith is, kind of, better. Let's get back into our passage, into into these three points. The goal is a faith that spreads. Look back at verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. This is sort of his first order of business. I'm so thankful for you. Why, Paul? Because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Do you guys remember who Paul is? Before his name was Paul, his name was Saul. And he hated Jesus, and he hated Christians, and he participated in the the killing of Christians. The first recorded Christian martyr, his name was Stephen. That means the first person that we know of that was killed for following Christ. Paul was there. In fact, he was holding everybody's jackets. And he was like heartily in approval of people stoning Stephen to death, throwing stones at him until he died of whatever happened to kill him. Who knows what kills you when you're stoned to death? It just depends on where the rocks hit. He was very much for it. He hated Jesus, and he hated Christians. But one day, God miraculously saved him. And he went from faithless to faithful. And he went from persecuting Jesus to proclaiming Jesus. And from that moment on, the spreading of this faith was his number one priority. So, of course, he's really, really excited to see this faith that the Romans have and that it's spreading. But it's not just Paul's desire, it's God's desire. And I think it's his desire for us too, a spreading faith, a famous faith. So, this has been a lot of information, hasn't it? Think with me for just a minute. What is Doolin's Grove known for? If we are known for anything, what is it? And this isn't, don't answer out loud, just think honestly. What is are we, as a group, a gathering of Christians, known for? How do you think history will look back on our church? What will we be known for in the future? What do you want us to be known for? As you're thinking about that, think about yourself. What are you known for? When people think of you... What do they think about? You know, in in a vapor's breath, we'll all be dead and gone. And how will history look back on each of us? How will history look back on your life? What will you be known for? If we are at all successful as as a church, as a group of Christians, we have to be known for our faith. There's a lot of other good things we could be known for. But if we're going to be successful as God's church, it has to be our faith that we're known for. A faith that works itself out in sacrificial worship. We, we need to be a people who, because we believe so much in God, that we'll sacrifice for his glory and for the good of other people. And I don't know what that might look like for us. 
for you and me as part of this church. Giving up a room in our house for someone who doesn't have a room. Giving up a chunk of our money, giving up a chunk of our time to see the gospel go advance somewhere overseas or even in our own city. How many of you have heard of the pastor David Platt? He's like a growing megachurch pastor. Okay. He has a church in Alabama. And he got convicted about all this, especially the sacrificial part. He was reading in the Bible about how we're supposed to take care of orphans. So he did some research about all the children who need foster homes, and he just presented it to his church and said, I don't remember the number, let's just say 75 kids in our area need foster homes. We've got several, several hundred people in our church. Maybe we can provide homes for some of these children who don't have homes. And they did. 75 families opened up their homes to foster children. And that was radical. That was crazy. But that's kind of what faith looks like. It's having enough confidence in God to obey what he says, to trust him for provision, to radically follow Jesus Christ. That's the kind of stuff we should be known for. Faith that works itself out in trusting God's promises over the world's promises. Faith that works itself out in righteous risk-taking. Some of you, some of you know what it is that God would have you to do. And I don't know what it is. But some of you, the still small voice has been whispering to you some act of obedience that he would like for you to do. And now it's just a matter of mustering up the faith to do it. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's going, maybe some of you should go take the gospel overseas on the mission field. I know that seems like something for just the really crazy Christians. But no, it's, it's people like us go and do that. Some of you need to speak up around someone you know who needs to hear the gospel. And you know that you need to speak up. But you're not sure you'll have the words to say. You're not sure that you won't make an idiot out of yourself and out of Christ. We need to be known as a people who have the kind of faith that we can just take risks with our lives, with our words, with our stuff. Just put ourselves and our stuff out there on the line in obedience to God. We want to be known as Christians who have faith that works itself out in decisive action. I think one of the areas of opportunity for us right now is helping the needy. Uh, the deacons and I have been wrestling with this since I got here, how to respond to the people in need in Charlotte. And we still don't know, honestly. It's very complicated. I mean, at first you would think if you're going to obey Jesus, you just start handing out checks. But that doesn't always really help people. So we're researching, and I'm reading, and some of us are going to go this week to crisis assistance ministry and, and participate in a little discussion they're having. Any of you are welcome to come, by the way, if you want to. Talk to me after the service. But there are a lot of people in need in Charlotte, people who need the gospel, people who need the love of Christ, and people who need help materially. And honestly, I don't think that we have really been very obedient to Christ's call to give to all those who ask of us. And it's mainly my fault because you guys aren't getting the calls. I'm getting the calls here at the church. And um, This is an area where I think we have room to grow in our faith, to obey Jesus, to trust him for our provision. And I appreciate your prayers toward that end. We're working on that. I want us to be known for that kind of faith, faith that works itself out in reality. 
faith that works itself out in enduring hardships. I'll tell you a story about another pastor named Matt Chandler. Anybody ever heard of Matt Chandler? No? Okay. <laughs> I don't know one who's heard of these guys. He's from Texas, so I don't know why you would have heard of him. He's got a big, growing, healthy church. But there was nothing famous about it until one Thanksgiving. It was the morning of Thanksgiving. His wife was in the kitchen cooking the meal. His kids were scrambling around playing. He got up from his chair to walk into the kitchen, and he just collapsed in a seizure because he had a brain tumor that he didn't know that he had. He's a young guy. He's probably not much older than I am. So he goes in, and they diagnose his brain tumor, and they tell him that odds are pretty good within the next two or three years you're going to be dead, which means you're not going to see your daughters walk down the aisle and get married. It means, you know, that's a terrible diagnosis to get. Many of you know firsthand what that's like. But now he is really getting quite famous because he continues to preach about the sovereignty of God. And his faith continues to be strong and is spreading because he has faith to endure hardship. Maybe that's what we'll end up doing. I don't know. But I pray that we're known for our faith. I definitely don't want to be known as the church that split in 2007 or the church that used to be a part of Arlington, I think, or whatever, all that stuff. I want to be known as a group of people that have faith. Because that's the kind of thing that spreads. It makes people say, you know, those people at Doolin's Grove, there must be something legitimate about this God that they worship. Or at least it, it might make them say, those people at Doolin's Grove, they must really believe. Is there anything about us just as a body of people that make people think that we actually believe all this stuff? Or do we look just like, you know, our coworkers and our friends who don't care at all about God? The goal is a faith that spreads. Second point, mutual faith burns hotter than solitary faith. I get this from verses 9 through 14. Paul says, For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making requests, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles." Again, Paul says so much, it's so hard to catch what he's saying. But basically he's saying, I really, really want to come to be with you. I've been prevented, but I really want to come to be with you. Well, why, Paul? Well, he says some weird things in there. He says, I want to come to give you some spiritual gift. What does that mean? And then he says later, I want to come to get some kind of spiritual fruit from you. What does that mean? Well, I think... What he's saying, he wants to do something that will establish them. And he clarifies it in verse 12. That is, as if he knows he's being confusing, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I think he wants to go to them so that they can all be stirred up by their mutual faith, because mutual faith burns hotter than solitary faith. He wants to go and establish them, and I picture like a small fire. Any of you heat your homes with wood fire? I know some of you do. No? 
couple, a little bit. I grew up, that's all we had for heat was our, our wood stove in the living room. And I'd get home from school, I'd be the first one home, and it would be freezing in there. And so I'd try to get a fire started. And you get a little fire started, and you're freezing, and you're trying to get this little fire established as a big fire. And I think that's what Paul's trying to do for the Roman Christians. There's a fire burning. He wants to go get it established as a big fire. And the way he's going to do that is just like you do sometimes with the fire in your fireplace. You kind of poke at it, and you stir up the logs, and you add more wood, and it establishes it. It builds it up to a bigger fire. He wants to go so that they can be stirred up through their mutual faith. So here's the basic principle here. By yourself, you are a torch. Together, we're a bonfire. By yourself, you're, you are a torch. Yes, a light out in the darkness. But you're only so hot, you're only so bright, you're only so powerful. But together, we're a bonfire. Paul wants to go and be with them so that they can all be stirred up together to a hotter, more powerfully burning faith. That's his goal. So, who are you around? And how is it affecting your faith? And how are you affecting their faith? Who are you around through the week? We're not all sitting in here in these pews all week. Who are you around at your house, at your workplace? How are you affecting each other's faith? Are your relationships spreading the faith, making it hotter? Or is it stifling? Are you stifling other people's faith? Are other people stifling your faith? Think about it. Really think about Picture the people in your life, your relationships. And I want to encourage you. If someone's in your mind that you think of who's just got a strong faith, a vibrant, burning faith, why don't you go get lunch with them this week? Why don't you go get together with them? Especially if you feel like your faith is flickering a little bit. Go get next to someone who has a strong, burning, vibrant faith because it catches on. Maybe you feel like your faith is pretty vibrant right now, but you know someone who's struggling in their faith. Go be with them. Stir up their faith. Shoot them a Facebook message. Do something. We need to be together. That's one of the reasons I keep pushing house to house so much. We need to be together, stirring up each other's faith. Some of you men, the men's fellowship group starting back first Saturday of March. Go, be there, stir up each other's faith. It will be very good for you. A spreading faith is the goal. Mutual faith burns hotter than solitary faith. And the gospel stokes the flame of faith. That's from verse 15. He says, so for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul just expressed his deep desire to stir up the faith in these people. And what's his method for doing it? You might catch it in that verse. Preach the gospel. What? They're already Christians. Why does he want to go preach the gospel to people who are already Christians? Why do you guys who have been at church here, I'm thinking almost all of you forever, why do I keep preaching the gospel to you? You've heard it. Many of you have accepted it. Why do we keep having to hear the gospel? And why does Paul think that that is the answer to stir up their faith? Well, I think gospel is another fuzzy church term. I mean, it does mean 
Jesus came. He lived the life we failed to live. He died the death that we earned, that we deserve. And those who have faith in him and follow him as their Lord and their Savior can be saved from, from all of sin's effects on us, both here on earth and damnation after. That's the gospel. But there's a whole world of truth and glory underneath that, undergirding that. Just like, you know, I tell Meredith, I love you. And that's true. I love you is true. But there's a whole world of life and experience and emotion underneath that. The gospel is much more than just that, that one short truth. You need Jesus or else. That's the bottom line, but there's so much more. All of Romans is the gospel. All of the Bible is the gospel. And it is the gospel that stokes the flames of our faith. We need to hear it. We need to hear it every day. We need to preach it to ourselves. We need to preach it to each other. I think the confusing thing about the gospel, the Bible teaches that it brings about faith. And I think that we think usually in terms of initial faith. Like when you became a Christian, the gospel brought about that faith in you so you could be saved. But the gospel also brings about daily faith. The gospel brings about initial faith and daily faith. If you're struggling with your faith, if the fire has burned out, you need the gospel. Even if you accepted it five years ago, ten years ago, fifteen years ago. And if it means nothing to you, You know, I know there's some people who, they hear the Bible talked about or preached or read, and it really doesn't stir up anything in them. You need to examine that. If that's you, if you're honest, hearing the Bible preached or talked about or reading it doesn't stir anything in you. You need to examine that and see if you have that flame of faith at all. Because people who do, the gospel fans that faith. Make it explode. We can do this for each other. I met a guy Friday. You may have seen the big green lift out there. Our trustees were in here working and replacing all the lights in here so that we could see each other. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but now we can see each other. But the guy who dropped that lift off was a great guy. I talked to him for a while. He was a pastor of one of these cowboy churches. Have you guys seen these signs for cowboy church? I really want to go sometime. They meet on Thursday, so I could go. He's just a great guy. And the whole time we we're talking, it was like he was breathing the gospel under me. And he wasn't like presenting a gospel tract to me. We were just talking about Jesus. We have a shared passion for it. And when he left, I was more on fire. My faith was hotter. And it was just a, maybe five minutes that we talked. That's kind of how we're supposed to relate here. We're all in the fireplace together, I guess. So summing it all up, Paul is thankful for the spreading faith of the Roman Christians. He wants to stoke their flames, and he does it through mutual faith and proclaiming the gospel. And lastly, the last thing I want to say to you is, if any of you are feeling guilty, you know you're a Christian, but you're like, I have a weak faith. It's not spreading to anybody. I don't talk to anybody about the gospel. Or you're feeling helpless or hopeless that you can do better. 
I just want to read one more verse to you. This is from Hebrews. This is in chapter 12, right after he talks about all this faith, challenging us to a stronger faith. And he says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This whole preparation has exposed deep, dark areas in me where I have very little or no faith about some of my stuff that I own, that I think I know what I ought to do with it, but I don't want to take the risk. A lot of things. And maybe it's exposing some areas of a lack of faith in you. Don't just try to go out and muscle more faith. Do like this verse says, fix your eyes on Jesus. He is the author of our faith and he is the perfecter of our faith. Jesus writes it into our hearts and he will perfect it. And by the grace of God, we'll be known as a church of strong and vibrant and burning faith. That's my prayer. Let's pray for that together right now.